Molly and the worship team. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can take your seat and open it with me to uh, Luke chapter 12. And as you're turning there, uh, we try to start off uh, at least at some point in every worship gathering uh, to uh, highlight and uh, strategically pray for one of our uh, uh, Go Further partners. Uh, and this week, I had the opportunity to connect with a guy that many of you know, uh, Chris Wilson. And uh, we've been praying for uh, Chris and the core team of, um, of Church of the Heights there in Starkville. They're planning to plant a church uh, in the new year, but one of their goals was uh, to have a Bible study um, this fall at some point and launch it. And this past week they launched it and we were praying with Chris, uh, just our elders to have, uh, that they would have five different people other than his family. Uh, and I got this text on Tuesday with this picture where they had 14 individuals come up. So between him and his wife, there were 12 other couples or 12 other individuals plus four children that showed up at Church of the Heights. And uh, that's a, a moment of a celebration, if you will, for them as they get to identify their core of, of who their core is as they plan to launch there on the campus of uh, Mississippi State. Uh, and then another prayer prompt as we get ready to pray is the Burlesons, uh, another family that you know well, is actually moving in the morning uh, to uh, Starkville. So if you would, uh, there's a few prayer prompts there. Uh, their core team, they're, they're having Bible studies for their energy to build this fall. They started last Tuesday. There, there's another one uh, coming this Tuesday. And then the Burlesons are moving in the morning uh, to uh, Starkville. So would you join me in prayer for uh, Chris, the Wilson family, the Burleson family, uh, as, and this whole core team of Church of the Heights there in Starkville. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. Thank you um, for each and every individual in this room right now that we've had the opportunity to, to sing your praises. And as we get ready to open your word, God, and that you would just work on our hearts um, in this season. And God, that we would learn to trust you more and more. And God, we, we celebrate the trust of the Wilsons and the Burlesons to uproot their lives and, and move to Starkville to, uh, to follow your lead and calling uh, for Church of the Heights. God, we pray for uh, the building of uh, this church that you are doing the work. God, you promise in your word that you are the one who's going to build your church. You just require for us faithful obedience and stepping in your lead. God, we, we're grateful for uh, the 12 other individuals plus the children who are uh, at this first Bible study at Church of the Heights. God, we pray for uh, that you would strengthen their faith, that you would equip those leaders uh, to go out and to, to be your hands and feet uh, all week long and that you would continually build uh, a spirit of unity and camaraderie of mission and vision around what you're trying to do there in Starkville. And we're grateful that uh, Journey Church gets to be a partner with them. God, we pray for the future of Church of the Heights as they plan to launch services in the fall, that you would just do an amazing work there uh, in Starkville on the college campus through uh, Church of the Heights. And we're grateful for uh, you, Jesus, and teach us now through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Hopefully you have uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 15. We're starting this three-week mini-series, if you will, on this idea of trust as we look at this one passage of Scripture together. We're going to be in Luke 12, 13 through 34 over the next three weeks. So if you're curious at how you can pray for me in sermon writing and where you can be at in the Scriptures of just reading these passages over and over again, that's where you can be. And this whole point is, is learning to trust our whole lives to Christ. 
And what do I mean when I say the word our lives? Well, I mean everything about our life, our identity, our status, our finances, our future, our longings, our hopes, our wants, everything. How can we learn to trust Jesus like that? Because the reality is, is when I say the word trust, many of us are acquainted with that word. We know the feeling that trust has when it's working in our lives and we're in a a good, solid relationship with someone and we can say with confidence, I trust them. I, I trust this person. But even on the opposite side of that pendulum, if it swings the other direction, we know that haunting feeling when trust is not working in a relationship where you just have this angst down in the core of your being. Hold up. I don't know if this is me or not. This angst. Oh, hello. Is this me, Connor? Okay, let me try to fix this. You know, you don't want to listen to that the whole time. This angst down in the core of your being when trust is not working in a relationship. You know that feeling when you have the relationship with someone and they've broken trust and they sit across the coffee table or a breakfast table with you and you're having this difficult conversation and they say those haunting words, just trust me. And everything inside of you is like, no, no, no. Because behind those three simple words, just trust me, is a lot of baggage behind that. Because the core of it is you're being asked to, is this a safe place to place your trust? Is this a safe individual? Is this a safe situation? And by a dictionary definition of that word trust, Merriam-Webster defines it as a, as a noun in this way, an assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. But other dictionaries like the Cambridge Dictionary defines trust as a verb and how it works in our lives like this, to believe that someone or something is good and honest and will not harm you, that they are reliable. So the crucial question behind the idea of trust is do we believe that this is safe for us to do? Is this the right move? Because trust is more more than a feeling. There is a feeling that is acquainted with trust, but trust is more than a feeling. It's, it's practical. It actually has handles in our lives. Because when Jesus invites us to put our faith in him, or in other words, trust, he's not asking us to do this ethereal thing with our head, nor is he asking us to just do this heart thing with our emotions. To actually genuinely trust Jesus with our lives, it moves from the head to the heart and out in a practical, tangible ways that we live our lives. Dr. Henry Cloud has this robust book on trust where he's studied what it looks like in individuals' lives. And he has these five core pillars of trust that I've adapted and made into questions uh, that, to give you some practical handles as we dive into this teaching. And the five Questions that you have to ask if do you or should you trust someone or something is this. First is this, do they get me? It's a question of empathy. Do they have understanding at the core level? Do they have that feeling uh, that they, they get where I'm at in my life? Number two is what's their angle or what do they want out of this? What's their motive in this? What do they want out of this situation or this thing in their life? Number three is, can they really pull off what they say? 
Can they really do the thing that they are inviting to do in this scenario? And the fourth thing is, is what are they going to do when things get hard? Okay, they can do what they say they can do, but what if, what if things go a little sideways? Are they going to have the moral compass and character to actually steer it back on track? And number five is, what's their history tell us about them? What's the track record say about this? So those are the five questions that you have to ask yourself in trusting anyone, and that's adapted from Henry Cloud's book, Trust, which is a phenomenal read if you are interested in it. But in this teaching series, as we look at the book of Luke, what we're going to see is how Jesus invites three different levels of intimacy into deeper and deeper trust with him and how he teaches them in it. So let's look at this text together. Luke 12, 13 through 15. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, the reality for my life is, as I look at it in my vocabulary, there's one word that's just a simple four-letter word that I wish that I could purge in one fatal blow from my heart and my mouth. No, it's not any of those four-letter words that you were thinking, but it's a four-letter word that surfaces in my children and in my life in the most ridiculous scenarios. Like in my two boys, it always happens over a plastic toy. And for me, it's over a cup of coffee that I don't want them to touch or something ridiculous where I was like, hey, no, that's, here it is, mine. It's mine. For them boys fighting over a, co- a toy car or a, a little stuffed animal and they, they yell at each other in the ages of three and two, that's mine. I wish I could just purge that out of my head and my heart. Sorry about this. My head and my heart and all of my vocabulary. That there's this myth if you will, of mine. And Luke tells us in this scenario, I want you to picture this in your mind, where in Luke 12, 1, it says that there are these thousands that are gathered to listen to the teachings of Jesus. The best teacher in human history is on the scene. He's a wordsmith. He's the creator of all things. He is God in the flesh. And they've, they've showed up to listen to him speak. And they're listening to him talk and he's, he's talked about, don't be afraid of the one who could harm the body, but rather fear the one who can harm the soul. And he's teaching these deep, robust teachings about what matters in life, where eternity is headed. And there's this guy that stands up and he says, hey teacher, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Something that's mine. He hasn't given it to me yet. Think about the audacity that this individual possesses to, to interrupt the teaching and say, hey, I got that's great and all, like the soul and the body, yada, yada, yada. But can you just tell my brother to split the inheritance? I got some things that are mine. And I need them to be mine. And in this teaching, what you're gonna see is that first, Jesus doesn't necessarily address the question, but he cares enough about the individual and where the heart is at 
that he gets beneath the surface. He digs beneath to see what the real issue is. And over the next three weeks, the way we've divided these teachings is based on who Jesus is actually teaching to. In this first week, just these few verses, this one sentence, Jesus addresses the heart condition of one man. And next week, you're going to see that he actually turns to the crowd to address the crowd. He teaches the thousands. And then he makes it hit really close to home because it says in Luke 12, 22, he turns to his disciples and speaks to them specifically. And so that's where the three weeks is headed. But in verse 13, this one man speaks to Jesus. And for him to speak to Jesus in this way, even though we believe that it's a little ridiculous, it's a little like crazy that he would interrupt this teaching, but this one man came on a mission. He believed that this guy who was doing some teaching had some authority and he wanted his input on his family matter. It was practical. It was tangible for this guy. For everybody else, they may have thought like, that's ridiculous. But for this guy, it was close to home. It was personal. It was valuable. He needed Jesus's input in this situation in his life. And he saw Jesus as some kind of uh, moral authority over him. And so he wanted him to speak into it. And so Jesus logically decides to do that. He logically decides to speak into this man's situation that he was going through. But for him to speak into it, Jesus treats this as a discipleship conversation. He treats this as not just a, well, have you uh, went to a lawyer over this? Or have you um, asked your brother why he hasn't split it with you? He, hasn't, he doesn't get practical. You see, Jesus speaks right to the heart. He gets to the heart of this man who has attention and he gives him some directions. And listen to the directions, if you will. And this is all in verse 15. That the directions that Jesus gives him is, the first thing he says is, take care. Take care. And this word literally means to wake up or to pay attention. Wake up and pay attention. And for us in this discipleship conversation that you at some level see the Bible as some interest or authority in your life, I'm going to treat it like you're that man, that I'm that man. And I'm interested in what the Bible has to say about my life and the practical, tangible, real life scenarios. And I'm going to treat us all like we're that man looking for Jesus to give us some direction on the tangible in our life. And the first thing Jesus tells us is wake up. Wake up. The second thing he says is, be on your guard. This word is an, an active word that says that we should take an active role. So Jesus says two things. Wake up and take some ownership. Wake up and get an active role in your life. Wake up, get in the game. But with what? He says, against the next word he uses is a word that means to go against the grain or go in the opposite direction of something. You see, the formation that Jesus is doing in this man's heart is counterformation. Because he recognizes that there is this culture that he is swimming in that is moving him in the opposite direction that Jesus wants him to move. And before he can be formed in the way of Jesus, he has to be deformed in the way of the world. And for all of us, there is a culture that we swim in with our lens towards what it means to trust, 
what is valuable and what gives your life worth and meaning. And for us, like this man, we have to be deformed before we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And for Jesus, speaking to this man, he says, wake up, get an active role against the way that this cultural climate is moving you in your life. Before you can understand what I'm about to say, this is Jesus speaking to this man, before you can understand what I'm about to say to you about your situation, you gotta realize that the culture is moving you in a direction and you gotta come actually against it. You have to have counterformation against the culture before you can actually swim in the direction that I'm pointing you to. So wake up and pay attention against, this is the big $4 word that Jesus uses, covetousness. Against covetousness. The word simply means the longing to have more and more and more. For whatever reason, Jesus could spot in this man's heart because God sees the intention of a man where we just see the outward expression. We have to try to figure out that second question and trust. What's their angle? Jesus already knew the angle. Apparently for the angle for this man, it was, I just want more. We don't know if his inheritance was financial wealth, if it was a family heirloom, if it was land, if it was property. We don't know. We have no clue. But for whatever reason, this individual just wanted more. The longing to have more and more is what Jesus says you should be a guard against. And then he teaches him a principle for life in two words. In two key words, in this last phrase, he says this, because for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The teaching of counterformation was against covetousness. Don't long for just more and more. But the second part of the question or the second part of the statement is, okay, but where does your life have value, meaning, and worth? And there's two words that you need to know what they mean. The first one is abundance and the second word is possession. Abundance, more and more without end. It's like the Roman proverb, if you drink seawater, you will only long for more. Because the saltiness, you keep getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. But possessions... For some of us, we may think, oh, that's just, that's him talking about money. But that word does not mean just money. The word literally means whatever belongs to you. It's whatever is, as my toddlers say, mine. And I don't know what mine is for you, but Jesus says that your life is not valuable because what is mine the value, the worth, the meaning of your existence here on this planet is not what is mine. But there is something that does provide value for it. But the first thing Jesus has to do is deform or push against the cultural climate that, they, that this man and us ultimately are living in. Because the truth in this is this man had believed this lie. He wanted Jesus' input as a good teacher, but he just wanted the thing, the stuff. And just as a side note or a cliff note, if you will, the truth about all the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament is none of them 
are designed to produce burden or anxiety in your life. None of them should cause or produce a burden-filled anxiety over you. And if there is some angst in your heart just about this one simple line from Christ, it should teach us about our own hearts and the own false strongholds that we've produced to give our life comfort, meaning, and purpose. When we have an angst about it, when we read the teaching of Jesus like, ooh, must have been bad to be that fellow. It teaches us about us. So let's look at our possessions, if you will, possibly. For some of us, the most valuable possession that we maybe have is our own physicality, our health and our body. And we think in our minds like, well, I ate well to get here. I put my body through all this strenuous exercise and, and eating and a diet. And I put up all of this effort to look this way or feel this way. It's mine. Or maybe you think it's your, your wealth and I worked hard to earn this, to have this security for myself and my family. I worked for this. It's mine. The prophet like Moses, Jesus would tell us from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to even get wealth. What about for some of us, it's our status, our reputation. We spent years, decades, maybe some of you in your family's generations to build a good name. That is mine. For others of you, maybe you think the most valuable thing in your life is your education, the advanced degrees, or you're the first one in your family to go to college and you worked hard, you put mad hours in, you made sacrifices, your family made sacrifices and to get that job or to have that diploma hanging on the wall and you're thinking that, that's mine. I earned that, I did the work. One of my favorite theologians who's now in heaven with Christ, he says this, there's not one square inch on the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Psalms 24, one says it like this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You and I are not our own, but there's only one individual who has the right to say that four letter word and it is Jesus himself where he declares mine. All things are his, but there's one point about value that we have to make in just framing our thinking in this regard. You and I as earthly creatures, as individuals, no matter how much we think we possess, we have lack. We are insufficient. But think about this one truth. God has no lack. God, in all of his Sovereignty and all of his goodness and all of what he is, he has no needs. None. As, and as his children, if, if you have children, or as, think about your infant and, and futile thinking of as being a little kid. You, you think your mom and dad, they have everything. 
that they have no lack. If you have any need, you run to them and you're like, I, I need snack. I need a new toy. I need this. I need this. Because you think they just, they got it all. But you, as, as God's children, you have a father who has no lack. But you and I, we have lack. Some of you are thinking that list that you just went through. You're thinking like, Daniel, my, my body is failing me. I have lack in my health. You may think, my finances, my money is just an utter mess. I'm in debt to my eyeballs that I have lack. I wish I could get a better job, but my education, I, I don't have the degrees I need, or I'm not smart enough. I have lack. My reputation is in shambles. I've burnt way too many bridges from poor mistakes. I have lack. But in all of our areas of lack, I've got good news for you and for me. When we look at this one idea of trusting a God who has no lack. If you think about the five questions of trust and put them on Jesus, where his invitation is, come to me, I'll give you rest. Come to me. And the question in our mind is, should I? Can I trust him really? Ethereally, it sounds great for one day so I don't end up in the bad place, but rather the good place. But like right here, right now in this life, can I trust him? When reality is all of our trust is pointed in one direction or another. It's either trust in myself so I'm the only one that won't let me down, but the truth of the matter is you let you down all the time. First question, does he get me? Empathy. Does he understand the pain and the misery of this life? Second Corinthians 8, 9 says this. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, remember that God we talked about that had no lack? Yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He gets you. He stepped out of the riches of heaven to be wrapped in flesh, to be born into poverty, under the understanding that he was culturally born out of wedlock, shamed in his family, lived a sinless life, died in my place, in your place, so that we, he could have us. Does he get us? Who else gets us more? Number two, question. What's he want out of this? What's he want out of this whole trust relationship thing? Well, can he want our, our stuff? Does Jesus want a share of that guy's inheritance? Heck no. He wants him. He wants him to see it rightly. He wants me. He wants you. What's he want out of this? He wants you to see him as a loving father with full of his abundance that there is enough of his grace in your life. 
He wants me. He don't want my stuff. He's got way more stuff. He didn't need any stuff. He wants me. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 again. For your sake. Not for his sake. Been a lot safer for him to stay where he was and figure it out again. Maybe I'll do better on the next round of humans. But in his grace, listen to Paul's words again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know him. But maybe for, for them, maybe for us, we just haven't really trusted him yet. And as we think about the last three questions of trust, I want to look at them as one whole. Can he really pull it off? What's he going to do when things get hard? What does his history tell us about him? Or in other words, what's his ability? What's his character in difficult situation? And what is his track record? One word, faithfulness. The Bible is full of account after account after account of God's faithfulness. The reality is in our lives, individually, collectively, as a whole of the body of Christ, that can Jesus really pull it off? He already has. He did what he said he came to do. We can trust him. What's he going to do when things get hard? He's going to cry out, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It is finished. What does his history tell us about him? That he is faithful. So for many of us, our, our, our next stop for some of you in this room that you've never trusted Christ as your leader of your life and forgiver of your sins and your next step is to, to trust him. You came with a practical question and he got right to your heart. For others of us, we've been believing this myth of mine where we're holding on to certain things because we believe the value of our life is wrapped up in this thing. It's wrapped up in me having a healthy body where I can go out and run as much as I want or whatever I want or, or looking good to receive compliments or it's in my education, it's in my smarts. If I don't have this, I'm not me. It's in my finances. There's this imaginary line that I've put on my bank account. When I get to this level of wealth, I'll be good then. The reality is, is where do we need to wake up to the lies that we're believing? Take an active role against those cultural longings and trust in Jesus. Paul writes it like this. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Christ is good. Christ is worthy. Christ is adequate for all of our trusts. 
for many of us, the simple action steps this morning is that one of those two things. To trust him maybe for the very first time or for others to spend time praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you these false strongholds of mine in your life. To recognize where we're believing these myths where we need Jesus to come and peer straight to our hearts. That we're trusting in these other things to provide us value in our stories. That we're holding on to these other kingdoms that we're building that would give us worth and importance in our own eyes. Wherever it is, will you trust him? Or will you keep holding on to the myth that it's mine? If you would, would you get in a posture of prayer before we worship more, being led by our worship team? I invite you just to simply to pray the bold prayer to the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where you're believing the myth. That you're believing this myth that it's yours. That the value in your life is wrapped up in something other than Jesus. That there is something else in this world that could actually give you more value than the king of the universe stepping out of heaven, being wrapped in flesh, living the life you couldn't live, dying the death you deserve. And there's something else that you should be pursuing other than that. Father God, we ask that you would mine our hearts and rid them of all the false strongholds of mine. May these words from these songs that we sing wash over us and Holy Spirit, would you move and work in ways that only you can.